أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سيقول السفهاء من الناس ما ولاهم عن قبلتهم التي كانوا عليها قل لله المشرق والمغرب يهدي من يشاء إلى صراط مستقيم وكذلك جعلناكم أمة وسطا لتكونوا شهداء على الناس لتكونوا شهداء على الناس ويكون الرسول عليكم شهيدا وما جعلنا القبلة التي كنت عليها إلا لنعلم من يتبع الرسول ممن ينقلب على عقبيه وإن كانت لكبيرة إلا على الذين هدى الله وما كان الله ليضيع إيمانكم إن الله بالناس لرؤوف رحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So my dear friends, brothers, sisters, wherever you are Insha'Allah, this first day of Ramadan was good for you. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to complete both our Ramadan and also our journey through the Qur'an. So today we begin the second juz of the Qur'an. The second juz of the Qur'an gets a lot more inclusive, uh, a lot more comprehensive in terms of the very specific uh, rulings and ahkam related to the life, both social life, family life, and individual life. And it's almost perfect because the first juz kind of sets the scene, has an introduction. And now, mashallah, the second juz, it provides a lot of the very specific details and rulings. It's like a manual. So inshallah, you'll see. However, the second juz starts off uh, with the discussion about the change of the qibla. The change of the Qibla, almost like you can say Islam, the worship in Islam was becoming more focused uh, in terms of its center, which is Makkah Mukarramah. Because as many of you may know, that initially, after the Prophet ﷺ moved to Medina Munawwara, for about 16 months or so, the Kaaba was not yet the Qibla. So Medina Munawwara is on the north of Makkah Mukarramah. So Makkah Mukarramah is in the south of the Hijaz, which is the western border of the Arabian Peninsula. So about four hours north, as you'll know, is Medina Munawwara. And then if you carry on north, you get to Jerusalem and Sham, Sham and Jerusalem. So when the Prophet ﷺ was in Makkah Mukarramah, he would actually stand behind the Kaaba so that he would face the Kaaba and in the in and north. So he would be facing Jerusalem, which was the Qibla at the time, but he would also face the Kaaba as far as he could. When he moved to Medina Munawwara, the, the two directions became an opposite side. So Jerusalem was north from Medina Munawwara because Medina Munawwara is in the middle. And, uh, and the Kaaba, which is Masjid al-Haram in Makkah Mukarramah, is down south. So he couldn't incorporate both directions at one time. It was impossible because it was 180 degrees. 
So while he used to pray, the Prophet used to keep looking up, kind of glancing up. That was just his way of looking for a revelation, looking for change of guidance almost, looking to see if the Qibla could change. So initially begins of saying, the foolish among the people, they are soon going to say that what made them change the Qibla. So after 16 months, the, the following verses were revealed. قَدْ نَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَجْهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ فَلَنُوَلِّيَنَّكَ قِبْلَةً تَرْضَاهَا Now we, we direct you towards the Qibla, the direction which you are satisfied with, which you were hoping for, and which you wanted all along. But there's going to, going to be people who's going to make a discussion about this. Foolish people who'll make this something to discuss, object to, wonder about, talk about. This is what talk show hosts do. And this is, you can just say, the earlier precursors of the talk show people. But obviously, not just to make money, right? Not just to have conversation, but actually also to, uh, to denigrate the Prophet ﷺ and the religion of Islam. Especially some of the Yahud said that because uh, Baytul Maqdis and Jerusalem was kind of their qibla, was kind of their direction as well. So obviously, it was a bit upsetting, it sounds, for them that now the qibla was totally uh, uh, severed from there, changed from there to Makkah Mukarramah. So not just the Yahud, but it was the Munafiqeen, the hypocrites at the time as well, who started to object in all of this regard. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَوَلِّ وَجْهَكَ الشَّطْرَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ Now, direct yourself towards Al-Masjid Al-Haram, the sanctified masjid, the sanctified place of, uh, place of sujood, of, of prayer. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds in there to respond to those objections that what does a direction mean anyway? All the directions. وَحَيْثُمَا كُنْتُمْ فَوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ When you look at these verses and you look at the way the Prophet ﷺ proceeded in this regard, where he wanted a qibla to change, but he never once prayed for it, he never once sought it or asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he just kept looking in anticipation. He kept looking in anticipation, uh, raising his gaze up to the heavens, and maybe the reason for that is that he didn't want to ask for something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted it to remain otherwise. For example, if Allah had maybe wanted it to remain towards Baytul Maqdis and he asked for something different, then that's the adab that a person has with their superior, with their Lord. And the Prophet sallallahu you can tell his husnul adab, his, his, his beautiful akhlaq with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. Now, immediately after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about providing bounties uh, to the believers to, to show that um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided them with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided them with this siraj munir, this lamp of guidance, which is a huge benefit to humankind and to the believers. So the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants everybody to face towards Masjid uh, al-Haram as well, that in itself is another huge benefit to, uh, to the Muslimin. That's why there's numerous verses it carries on all the way until about verse 151 or so. I think the main thing in all of this وَمِنْ حَيْثُ خَرَجْتَ فَوَلِّ وَجْهَكَ شَطْرَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ وَحَيْثُ مَا كُنْتُمْ فَوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ شَطْرَةِ لِأَلَّا يَكُونَ لِلنَّاسِ عَلَيْكُمْ حُجَّةِ In all of this, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that the main thing is that the main thing is not that you face in a particular direction only. That is important to have everybody synced in one direction, have a unity throughout the world that they're all facing in the direction of the Kaaba. Otherwise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not physically located in the Kaaba. It's a house that represents him. It's the most distinctive feature of representation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it's called the house of Allah. Where we're sitting is also a house of Allah. But the ultimate Kaaba and the Baytullah is in Makkah Mukarramah. But the real, the real objective is not the direction only. That's just to get everybody physically oriented in a particular direction. Otherwise, really what's important is that people get their orientation of their belief, their actions, their dealing, and their character. So the aqaid, a'mal, mu'amalat, and the akhlaq, that these need to be in the right direction. That's, that's really what's most important. That's why Allah says, وَلِأُتِمَّ نِعْمَتِي عَلَيْكُمْ وَلَعَلَّكُمْ تَهْتَدُونَ So that I uh, complete my bounties upon you and so that you are given guidance. And then Allah says, كَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا فِيكُمْ رَسُولًا مِنْكُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْكُمْ آيَاتِنَا وَيُزَكِّيكُمْ وَيُعَلِّمُكُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَيُعَلِّمُكُمْ مَا لَمْ تَكُونُوا تَعْلَمُونَ Allah has sent you the messengers so that you can so that he can teach you all of these different things. That's verse 151. And then 152 is, Telling us to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and thank him. All of this gets summed up in the Ayatul Bir, which, was, which, we're going, which is around at the quarter of the Jews, about 100 and, uh, verse 177. After all of this discussion in between, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then sums it up there, that the real piety and righteousness is not just that you turn your face to the east or the west but true faith true faith and true piety is the one who believes in Allah and the last day and the angels the book the prophets gives money and spends money where it's due to his family to the orphans and so on and so forth so you can you can read that verse in in, in detail that's why there are approximately 16 different rules that are mentioned in that, uh, not just in that verse, but the cluster of verses mostly after it, and there's two of them that are mentioned before it. So let's just quickly go through the 16 main rulings that are provided around this ayah of, uh, of bir, which is laysa al-birra an tuwallu. So out of that, what you've got is... Uh, the main gist of it is that just doing outer rituals or putting up symbols of faith is not sufficient, right? You know, for example, what some Christians would do is they put a Christmas tree at Christmas. It's just a symbol. Don't even know what the origin of that is. So Muslims are told that you're, you're not going to focus just on symbols. Symbols are important. They provide a form of unification, no doubt. They provide a form of representation and identity no doubt but that's not the objective the objective and the soul and the substance of your faith is more than that it's how you turn your heart and your behavior in to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the way you deal with everybody that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to deal with in the correct way so it's not just about doing something in a masjid that's why this, these times are very important for us because we don't have access to the masajid. Majority of people don't. But it's your deen continues. God is still there. Your worship still continues. 
you do tarawih at home, right? Whether congregation or alone, right? You do your Jumu'ah prayers, you can't do Jumu'ah, you do Dhuhr at home. So our deen continues. And Allah gives you the reward of what you would have liked to have done in normal circumstances. So the idea here now is that how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want us to be in the house, when shopping, in the markets, on the streets, in the masjid, in a madrasa, when studying, uh, politically speaking, in terms of ruling or being subjects, in terms of business, in terms of just uh, interaction with one another. All of that Islam teaches us and a lot of those laws you'll find in the second juz of the Quran here in part of Surah Al-Baqarah. So that's why this ayah is called Ayatul Birr. Ayatul Birr, Laysa Al-Birra An Tawallu Wujuhakum. As I mentioned, it's verse 177. Now, what are these Ayatul Birr? Uh, sorry, the Ayatul Birr represents the 16 or so. These would be called the Abwabul Birr, the doors of goodness, the doors of piety. What are the 16 doors of piety that are discussed in this verse? So as I mentioned, there's two that are discussed beforehand. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna safa wal marwata min Allah." فَمَنْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتِ So that's verse 180, 158. So this was a ritual uh, from, the, the Hajj was a ritual from before Islam, right? From Ibrahim salam's time, there's been some kind of a pilgrimage, though it was probably modified from what it was supposed to be, and a lot of corruption had entered into it. So now the way the mushrikeen used to do it is that on Safa and Marwa, there were actually two mounts at that time and the valley was in, the, in between where the two green lights are today. So they actually had two idols. They had idols on Safa and on Marwa. So essentially they'd made it into an idol house, right? And a location of idols. And that's why uh, some, some of the Sahaba uh, initially were avoiding the Safa and Marwa uh, because they thought that it was to do with Jahiliyyah and it was to do with the time of ignorance. And so that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that the فَلَا جُنَاهَا عَلَيْهِ أَنْ فَبِهِمَا There's no harm in going between them. It's actually part of your ritual. Because now the idols have been uh, removed anyway. Number two, the mushrikeen, the, the, uh, the pagans, the idolaters at that time, they used to have their own way of making certain things haram upon themselves. Okay, this animal is haram, I can't eat it anymore. Even though it's a goat or something. Right? They had these ways of making certain things haram and restricting certain things for certain people and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. They had their own kind of laws in, in that regard. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then teaches us that there's this whole set of verses that discuss إِنَّمَا حَرَّمَ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَةَ وَالدَّمَ وَلَحْمَ الْخِنْزِيرِ So that's going to verse 173. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then tells us, as at the beginning tells us, that these, the, the things which are haram upon you and unlawful upon believers is only, as I said, the deceased, uh, a, a carrion meat that was not slaughtered properly, flowing blood, uh, the, the, the flesh of pig and swine, regardless of how it's slaughtered, and anything that is slaughtered on other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name. Then Allah mentions there that if somebody is in an extreme situation where they don't have anything to eat, they're going to die, literally. Then it becomes halal for them to even eat from one of these unlawful things. Just enough to be able to sustain themselves. And not in a way that they gain pleasure and they start enjoying it. It's literally just to uh, survive and to save themselves. So that's, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, He says, Inna Allah ghafoorur rahim. 
constantly you, f you find these throughout, they mean something. There's a very specific reason. We don't have the time to go into the subtleties of why it says Ghafoor Rahim in this case, but I think it's quite obvious in this case. Allah is the forgiving one and the merciful one. This is the hukum, this is the ruling of mercy for you. Number three, the, the third point which, uh, this, uh, the, uh, of the Abu'abul Bir essentially is that the Islamic Sharia is based on justice. And one of those aspects, which is a very important one, starts just a few verses down on verse 178, which is, That you are going to basically take a life for a life. That's a command for you to take a life for us. So that's an Islamic idea. And it's taking already from, as uh, will be mentioned later on, later on in another surah. So the idea of this is that, yes, if a murderer murders someone, then yes, it, it, the, the, his blood is lawful now. He's, no, he's lost his sanctity. However, there's also a ruling here that those who can forgive Right, فَمَنْ عُفِيَ لَهُ مِنْ أَخِيهِ شَيْءٌ فَاتِّبَاعٌ بِالْمَعْرُوفَ أَدَاءٌ إِلَيْهِ بِإِحْسَانٌ فَمَنْ اِعْتَدَى بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ فَلْهُ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ وَلَكُمْ فِي الْقِصَاصِ حَيَاتٌ يَا أُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ All of that is discussing the kind of philosophy behind allowing somebody who murders someone else to be murdered and kill themselves. Because that is a huge deterrent. That's why Allah says that for you in doing this is life. You're killing somebody and there's life in there. Well, the idea is that generally it's considered a huge deterrent that a person will think twice. Now, there are two opinions about this in the world. Some places, they have the death penalty. In other places, they're vehemently opposed to it. They're helpless. Their hands are basically tied in terms of what they can do to the increasing number of murders and rapes and all of these other things, but they're not willing to bring in capital punishment. Yet in other places, I mean, even in the West, so the West is not unified in this regard. I mean, in America, in many states, there is a death penalty. They see the benefit in that. They see the wisdom behind that. So they, they do that. But in other places, they throw their arms up in the air. They don't know what to do when they see so many crimes and how to deal with it. But if anybody brings this idea up, they, they look on it as completely barbaric. From an Islamic perspective, it's there, it's mentioned in the Quran, and there's a legislation, and there's also a reasoning. وَلَكُمْ فِي الْقِصَاصِ hayat, Right? For you in this qisas, in this, uh, I, uh, in, the, in this life for a life, essentially, is a hayat. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does, does say that anybody who forgives, anybody who forgives and uh, who, 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 who takes a ransom instead, then that's also good as well. So we've got two ways to do that. It's not like earlier faiths, like the, 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 the Jewish faith, where they had to be, you, you had to take uh, the retribution. Right? No, you can actually forgive and you can actually take a ransom instead as well. Let's just, uh, another one which is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that anybody who is close to death, كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذَا حَضَرَ أَحَدَكُمُ الْمَوْتِ which is a verse 180, is that those of you who are close to death or who think they're going to die soon, and subhanAllah, I mean this is a good time as any, right? is that they should actually write a wasiyah. The, the full, the, 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 you should write a wasi, the full laws aren't here yet, but it's saying that you should at least write a bequest, right, of where your, where your inheritance is supposed to go. So that's encouraged here. Then number five is finally where the fasting is mentioned. So for every sane, mature Muslim, fasting is necessary. And there's 
يا أيها الذين آمنوا كتب عليكم الصيام كما كتب على الذين من قبلكم starts from verse 183 and it continues and there's numerous uh, discussions there related to fasting, related to Ramadan, related to eating and drinking and so on and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about Ramadan being a very important month because then he brings in the fact that the Quran is also revealed in the Shah Ramadan الذي أنزل فيه القرآن. Then it carries on to discuss a number of other things like it's permissible during the nights of Ramadan once the iftar has been done. I mean people know that you can eat and drink. I mean that's coming anyway. Right? That's coming anyway. But first Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that it's allowed for you to have intercourse. The spouses are allowed to have intercourse. However, this is not allowed during i'tikaf. Then after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about وَلَا تَأْكُلُوا أَمْوَالَكُمْ بَيْنَكُمْ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَتُدْلُوا بِهَا إِلَى الْحُكَّامِ That it's not allowed for you to consume anybody's wealth in an unlawful way. Whether that be through deception, whether that be through interest and usury, because that's not allowed in Islam. Whether that be by usurping somebody's wealth, not giving somebody their right, withholding somebody's debt, or for it, whatever it is. You can see there's a huge amount of laws here, both ibadat laws of worship to Allah, and also laws about inter-social uh, inter relationship. Another thing I just want to mention here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, which is giving permission for intercourse between spouses during the night. Some of the philosophy behind it. And then Allah says that He knew that um, this is a very important ayah for me at least, right? Because there's so many things that, I'm, that, that is based on this verse. Now eat and drink. Once iftar is done, once maghrib is coming, eat and drink until. Because initially it was not allowed for a person, it was only allowed for a person to eat after iftar, meaning at maghrib time, until they fell asleep. So if somebody fell asleep, uh, of course, until fajr, if somebody fell asleep before then, they couldn't eat afterwards. So there was a sahabi who came from the fields really, really tired and weary. And he was really, really tired. Came home and he said to his wife, is there any food? She says, I'll prepare you something. But he was so tired, he fell asleep. He'd been fasting all day, he fell asleep. And as soon as he fell asleep, what happens now is that his next fast has begun. It didn't start at Fajr time, it started from the time you slept. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse now, that now you can eat and drink until the white, th the black, the white thread becomes distinct from the black thread. right? So this is the basis of both the publishing company that I started, White Thread Press, and also the Institute, White Thread Institute, which is a non-profit organization. Right? It comes from this, it has a Quranic basis and a fiqhi basis that basically you can eat and drink until dawn, right? until dawn uh, becomes clear for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then carries on about um, number eight. So the eighth point then is يَسَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَهِلَّةِ Starting to ask about the moons now. Right, something which could really benefit from if somebody really understood this and followed this properly. That you need this, you need to understand not just the solar system that you're used to, but the lunar months. Because many of your worships are related to the lunar months. As we know, Quran, uh, the, the Ramadan, the Eid, the Eid al-Adha, uh, Ashura, and so many others. Um, number nine is a long discussion about jihad. About basically defending against your enemies, and uh, dealing with your enemies, preparedness against it, some of the benefits in doing so, uh, not being weak in that regard. SubhanAllah, living in the West, that's a very difficult hukum. It's in the Quran, it's a very difficult hukum and a ruling for people to, uh, to even understand what to do. That's why there's lots of people who take advantage of people's sentiments for jihad, 
right? People's sentiments for jihad, the message in the Quran is over and over, right? So then they, uh, they basically manipulate them to do the wrong thing, which is not a real jihad. But we really need to sit down and try to understand the frustration among people about understanding the real understanding of jihad and how to maybe do it in the correct way. Right? And that's a very important and very profound discussion that's probably going to have to be have as we continue to live in the West. Right? As we continue to live in the West. This is obviously not the time for it. Then it speaks about in, in, uh, spending in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then another huge discussion comes after the fasting. Right? We've already had salat and zakat before, yesterday, in the first Jews. Now the discussion about hajj. Another great pillar of hajj, uh, pillar of Islam, which is the hajj. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to come together in one place. The Muslims of the world, whoever can come, to come together, show your solidarity, learn from one another, benefit from one another, and perform a worship together. When you do some, a ritual together, it creates a bond. And the harmony, uh, uh, harmony is created. Then it mentions that the hajj can only be done at once during certain months. However, the umrah can be done uh, more than that. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses very specific rules about the hajj. Now, it's not just here. There's suratul hajj, an entire surah about hajj. But there, it's more about the sentiment and the emotion of the hajj is more discussed there. Here, the discussion is more about the rituals of the hajj. And to try to correct some of the jahili rituals of hajj. Because remember, they had hajj before, before Islam. So number one, a lot of the Quraysh, they thought they were special. Because they used to be the caretakers of the Kaaba, of the Haram. Right? So they were in charge. So there were certain things that they wouldn't do. And they said that everybody else can do it. Right? So, for example, one of the things that they would do is that they would not go to Arafah. Arafah is the furthest location. They would stay in Muzdalifah and they would actually think it's lowly to go to Arafah. Everybody else could go Arafah if they wanted. They wouldn't go. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says here that now you need to go that you need to also go where everybody else goes. Then the second thing they would do is when they would come back to Mina for those days of the Rami, of, of pelting the shaitan, that would be a time of huge fanfare of basically them competing with one another with poetry and so on to try to say that my forefathers were superior to yours. Our tribe is better than yours because we won more, more battles and we had such and such an individual and so on. That's what they would do. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that when you come back, فَإِذَا أَفَضْتُ مِنْ عَرَفَاتٍ فَاذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ عِنْدَ الْمَشْعَرِ الْحَرَامِ وَاذْكُرُوهُ كَمَا هَدَاكُمْ وَإِنْ كُنْتُمْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ لَمِنَ الضَّالِّينَ Then after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِذَا قَضَيْتُمْ مَنَاسِكَكُمْ Once you've done those main rites of Arafah and so on, فَذْكُرُوا اللَّهِ Remember Allah, كَذِكْرِكُمْ آبَاءَكُمْ Just the way you used to remember your forefathers, أَوْ أَشَدَّ ذِكْرًا أَوْ أَشَدَّ ذِكْرًا Or even actually more intensely, now you need to use this time to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. General encouragement to spend in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because remember the deen one of the things that you need for the sustaining of our religion of the institutions of our religion like the mosques and so on is that people need to spend of their money to assist them because that's what you need you need you need that like in this time in this particular time when the masjids are uh, unfortunately out of bounds for most people I mean they're still going to need to uh, have their expenses so it's something to, uh, to consider in Ramadan don't forget your masjids right don't forget your local institutions right which have been shut down now and you can't maybe visit them right now they may be teaching online right and they may be doing durus like this online but uh, you, you have to remember them because spending in the path of Allah is a major part of our deen it's an essential aspect of the e economy and the sustainability 
the, the stability of our foundations. And the main thing is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give a huge reward in all of this. Number 12, there's a discussion about the, 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 the one who becomes a murtad, the one who loses their faith, the one who apostates. So that's, that discussion then takes place. And then after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses from verse 219. So that was in 217. Verse 219. Puts the two together. Uh, one is drinking, khamr, which is wine. And number two is maysir, which is gambling. Because they're both bad addictions. One of them you can actually smell on somebody's breath. The other one is actually more deadly. I've spoken to a person who's addicted to gambling. So the problem with this is that you can't even smell it. Can't even tell that somebody's a gambler. With a drinking, you can see from the, you can understand from the slurring of their speech, maybe the way they walk, right, and so on. But with a gambler, you just will not know. That's why the gambling is even sometimes even worse because it's so difficult to remedy. So both of these are mentioned here, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala refers, obviously, um, uh, or rather, the Prophet Sallallahu referred, uh, uh, wine is referred to as Ummul Khabaith, right, and gambling is one of the worst of deeds. Then number 14, after discussing a lot of these social issues, as we've discussed so far, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to speaking more specifically about family issues, interpersonal relationships with the family. Family is what creates the community, zooms in even further from talking about more community-related issues to more specific family-related individual issues. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses a number of things and mainly in that is you have the discussion of nikah and you have the discussion of talaq which goes on and on in a lot of detail verse uh, 221 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about who to marry and that it's not allowed to marry a pagan an idolater marriage should be based on your religion in uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in another verse has allowed marriage of Muslim men to Christian and Jewish women but not, other, not the other way around. However, as mentioned in the hadith and, uh, from the Sahaba, etc., it's disliked because it's very difficult to have, uh, if you've got different faiths, it's very difficult to have a common understanding in terms of maintaining the family because a major aspect of the family is children, providing an environment. If you have two different ideas, faith is a very important aspect for people. It's not something on the side. I know in the modern world, faith is kind of on the back burner. It's a kind of a side issue. It's a supplementary issue. But for Muslims, faith is a very big issue. It's a very important issue. And that's why a lot of people can't understand when uh, Muslims tell people that we're not allowed, it's not good to, to marry outside the faith. Because that's something that unifies the whole focus of worship and life. Because remember, Islam governs every aspect of our life. And if the husband and wife don't have that, and they have different values in that regard because it's going to be different values. It's going to be extremely difficult. So it was allowed because of need in certain cases, but it's considered undesirable and disliked where there's no need for that. That's with just with Christian and Jewish women. Otherwise, with anybody else, it's not allowed at all. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about that in, in, in detail. And uh, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Allah is inviting you to paradise and to guidance. Uh, to, to forgiveness by his permission. And Allah makes all of this very clear. The next one, number 15, very specific ruling now, zoomed in even further, is about women's menstruation issues. It's a very important issue. But the problem is that so many women, they have absolutely no idea about when to start, when, when to finish. That's why we've run several courses to actually equip women. 
right, both alimas and non-alimas to really understand it so that they can help. Otherwise, many women have to come to men to ask this question and they feel very embarrassed because it's a very, very personal issue, right? And that's why uh, it's very important that you become, you know, you learn about this, right? You learn about this and there is a course for women on Rayyan Institute, right, for, uh, for the menstruation. It's an eight, uh, I think it's an eight or ten session course that you should definitely take, right? It's geared, uh, it's uh, targeted at beginners as well. So it's a really good idea that you, you understand that because Allah mentions it in the Quran and he talks to men to say that, yes, you may have a desire at that time, but that's a holiday time where you're not allowed to do the, the intimate act. Yeah, you can have other forms of intimacy and I'm keeping this language general because there may be children who are listening but you may, you may have general, you know, uh, mutual uh, intimate benefit but not in the area, uh, not in the very specific area, right? Which, because it's a other, it's harmful at that time, it's harmful and that's why that should be avoided. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, moves on to the next one which is uh, number... 16. The other reason that this was also mentioned here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says after talking about the prohibition of in, you know, penetrative intercourse during menstruation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Nisa'ukum harthun lakum. Your women are a uh, tilth, uh, a crop for you. Right? Fa'tu harthakum anna shi'tum. You're allowed to approach your crop from whichever direction you want. Which is, uh, 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 which is actually a response to the, the, the Jewish prohibition of only allowing sexual intercourse in one particular position. And they said that the other position is wrong, it, br- it provides all of these harms and so on. So the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is completely allowed. anfusikum, Like send forth for yourself. And then it's very interesting. And fear Allah and know that you're, gonna, you're going to know that you're going to meet him one day. Know that you're going to meet him. Why is that discussion when it's to talking about sexual intercourse? That's why many of the ulama they've taken from this, that those who are really the awliya of Allah, those who really understood Allah, all of this is just a reminder of them of the, the pleasures of the afterlife and of the greatness of Allah. So even when they're engaged in something like what people would call a lowly act, which it, which it is not, if it's done in the right way, it's actually a very noble act because that's how humans are born, right? They actually get closer to Allah even, you know, just through, because of their perspective when they're doing the act. That's why Imam Ghazali says that that gives you, one, gives you one of the sensations of the greatest pleasure to remind you of paradise. So you, we need to change our understanding of why we, uh, 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 of these things. And again, I'll have to leave that to you to look at that in detail. The number, number 16 then is regarding basic rules of uh, breaking an oath. That yes, oaths are there in Islam. If you break them, then this is what you'll have to do. Uh, number 17 then, uh, moving on from verse 226-227, moving on. The largest amount of verses related to divorce and all the, most of the rulings related to divorce is in Surah Al-Baqarah. Even though you've actually got it in the 28th juz, you've got a Surah Al-Talaq, a Surah that's called after Talaq. There are some rules mentioned there, but I think a lot of those rules that are mentioned there is a lot of emotional assistance there as well. Whereas here it's about, uh, the, the, the rules about talaq are quite in detail. Um, ihsan. I would suggest to everybody, every Muslim, that they go through these verses. Because one of the biggest problems that we face as scholars is talaq issues. People just giving talaq without any consideration. Just willy-nilly, without understanding. And this is then their excuse. We didn't know 
that this was a divorce, that this was going to amount to a divorce. That's why the book that I've written called Handbook, recent Handbook of a Healthy Muslim Marriage, most of it is just mostly practical and anecdotal, right, based on cases. But the divorce, I've insisted on adding a divorce section in there, which is slightly more technical, explaining all the types of divorces. So those who are married should definitely understand divorce because it's something which you don't want to do wrong if you ever have to do it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that sometimes, you know, there are going to be cases where your home becomes a living hell and you need to separate. That's why if there is a divorce, is allowed in Islam as opposed to in the Catholics, they don't allow divorce. You'd be excommunicated from the church if you got divorced, even though it's a reality of life, right? That's why in Islam it's allowed and the Prophet signified it as abghadul halal. It's the most detested of the halal things. So a lot of people think it's haram to do it. They're misunderstanding that it's haram to do it in a wrong way. But by default, it is a halal act when it's necessary to do. So don't hold on to your wives, even though you've, you know, there's no possibility of reconciliation. And you're just holding on to them because Allah speaks about that here. That do not leave them mu'allaqah. Right? فَإِذَا طَلَّقْتُمُ النِّسَاءَ فَأَمْسِكُونَ بِمَعْرُوفٍ أَوْ سَرِّحُوهُنَّ بِمَعْرُوفٍ وَلَا تُمْسِكُوهُنَّ ضِرَارًا لِتَعْتَدُوا Don't hold on to them just to harm them. I'm going to punish her forever so that she can't marry someone else. Every moment you're doing that, you'd be sinful for that. Because you're, you're basically not giving her her right. You're not letting her come. She doesn't want to maybe come. It's irretrievably broken down. You need to let them go. وَذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَمَا أَنزَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ الْكِتَابِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses the mahr, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses the mahr, the, the dowry, and the discussions about that. I'm not going to go and uh, talk about that. Then there's the discussion about uh, can a divorced woman marry somebody else? Yes, she can. But Allah says that if a husband has divorced his wife three times, then after that Allah says, فَإِن طَلَّقَهَا i.e. the third time which is verse 220, uh, 30 She's not allowed to remarry that same husband who's divorced her three times whether together or three separately Once he's done three he's lost uh, his right to be with her So now she can't go back to him she, she would have to marry someone else until she marries somebody else consummates the marriage Right, which is not the consummation part is not mentioned here, but then only then, if she happened to be divorced from there, she'd be able to come back. If that was all organized and pre-planned, then that would be haram to do that anyway in most cases. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses the fact that do not harm your wives. In fact, um, it says, وَلِلْمُطَلَّقَاتِ مَتَاعٌ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Many people don't know this, that when you, if you happen to divorce your wife, you should actually give her a parting gift when it all gets dissolved. And you're not going to see any, and there's going to be generally a lot of acrimony in most cases. You're supposed to give her a suit, any top and bottom, you know, a suit, a dress and trousers, just so that it just diffuses some of the hard feeling. وَلِلْمُطَلَّقَاتِ مَتَاعٌ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ as well. That could also refer to other things as well. Um, then it moves on to uh, the 21st point here, is that, again, Islam is based on uh, justice, ihsan and so on and there's no allowance for um, uh, there's no allowance for dhulm and oppression that's why even if there's a separation and the mother has to be called on to she still has the right to feed her children, to nurse her children so all of that discussion is there right how long the 
the nursing period needs to be. All of that discussion is there. Women should especially read this, right? Because it's very relevant. Then after that, there's a discussion of iddat now. Once divorce takes place or the husband dies, then women have to sit in the waiting period. One of the reasons for it is obviously to mourn the husband, right? Mourn the death of the husband. Another reason is to find out whether you're carrying the child of that husband. Because Islam is very, uh, lays a great emphasis on making sure your genealogy, your ancestry is not confused. So if you get married to somebody straight away, then it could be a possibility that you might think it's the second husband's child, whereas it's actually the first husband's child. That's why it takes about three complete menstrual cycles for that to be clarified. Not just one, but three complete menstrual cycles a woman have to spend in order to do that. Again, there's lots of detail here which we obviously can't go into. So the various discussions about iddat and the waiting period is discussed in, in these verses. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, speaks about Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. What do we discuss? What don't we discuss? We see the time creeping upon us. So the idea is how much we discuss. Alhamdulillah, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground. But just a few points that are left here as we're nearing the end of the surah. Um, finally, to, just to make it more comprehensive, there's also a discussion that if a husband and wife are having problems and the wife want out, wants out, but the husband won't let her, then there's also, uh, there's also a discussion about the wife providing a payment or foregoing her dowry to secure the divorce. That's also, uh, that's also mentioned in the Quran. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then puts in here, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْطَى In the midst of all of that discussion going back to the worships, so that is uh, verse, 200 and, verse 238, uh, 238, which is be, be very protective and regular and mindful over all your prayers, especially the middle prayer. Big discussion as to what the middle prayer is. Many ulama say it refers to asr prayer because that's kind of in the middle where it's easier for it to be missed. Because by Maghrib you're at home, generally in a moderate climate you are, in Fajr you're at home. In Dhuhr there's a, there's, a, there's a time when you're focused, but Asr time is the end of the business day. So it's very possible that in all the coming back from your commute you may miss Asr. Be very particular about your Asr prayer especially. Right, then to finish off, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides two stories, two incidents. One of them is kind of re relevant to us, but we don't have the time to go into it in detail is basically uh, uh, from verse 243 But Allah says So this is the story of a certain community who were hit by a proper plague. Now, thanks to God that this is not a plague. Because what we're going through right now, if it was a plague, there'd be very chan less chance of survival. That would be deadly. Like anybody who catches it, mostly they die. That's what's happened in the past of the uh, bacterial plagues. Uh, we're dealing with more virus right now, but that, those are more bacterial. And generally, anybody that catches is probably going to die. Right, most likely. So that's why we call this a waba as opposed to a ta'un. But anyway, these people were afflicted by a ta'un, and the condition in a ta'un is basically lockdown. The, 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 the ruling is a lockdown. Don't get out. Right? Which we're being told to do right now as well that don't get out. 
So the idea is, I mean, flights are mostly suspended and so on. However, these people, they got scared. So they didn't listen to the ruling that you must stay there, and they ran out. They left. And they died. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then um, gave them death. That why did you do that? So follow the ruling that you're supposed to do. Stay indoors, stay, stay home. Right? I'm not saying that the Quran is telling us to do that right now directly. Right? Don't get me wrong here. But generally we get the inspiration of that from, from these verses. The second story is a more detailed story that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses. And after all of these specific rulings, ruling, rulings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the next cluster of verses from that starts at Remember, there's a lot of discussion of Bani Israel here. So he goes back to that discussion on verse 246. These, these group of the Israelites, they were asking for a, a commander, a king, a sovereign, a leader that they could fight behind to deal with their enemies. Right? This is the whole story of Goliath and Saul, Talut. So that discussion is there. And there's a numerous benefits in this story for us. The story is not there just as a historical account. right? It's there for a very particular aspect. Number one, speaking about the whole jihadi aspect of it, that uh, this, is, this was important for them to defend themselves because they were under impending danger. Then after that, what's very interesting about this story apparently is that this was in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were three Jewish tribes in Medina Munawwara. Right, the Banu Nadir, the Banu Qaynuqa, and the Banu Qurayza, right? And they, were, they had learned people among them, they had their ulama, their, their, their rabbis among them. Now, one, this particular story about Saul and the Tabut, right, that ark, whatever it was, uh, that was something only the elect few learned individuals among the community knew. It was not something that the common Jewish individual knew among the three tribes at that time, according to what the Mufassirin historians mention. So the fact that this story is mentioned in the Quran in so much detail was like a big wow factor, right? That this story, I mean, which, which is not being denied by the ruling, sorry, but by the religious elite among the Jewish tribes at that time. So this story is not just a story to uh, provide a historical account, but it's to fulfill a number of different uh, purposes and one of them is to show the truth of the Quran, right? That this is and that's why there were a few Jewish rabbis that actually then converted. It's like Abdullah ibn Salam and 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 so on. Now the other thing is that th this story is um, speaking about كم من فئة قليلة غلبت فئة كثيرة بإذن الله. This is a part of a verse that is quoted in numerous situations. Especially when you've got a small group that, and you face danger from a more powerful enemy. Your foe and your opponent is much more powerful or more in number. Right? So this is to give a huge amount of confidence and assurance and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the whole story is, is, is discussed. Um, number one, they didn't agree with Talut being their leader because he didn't come from a special family. He didn't have a lot of money. So th th sometimes you get this psyche among communities, including Muslim communities, that the, the, those who have prestige, right, in any sense, needs to be the worldly prestige. You've got money or influence or position. The religious prestige is nothing. 
That's why there's some countries in the world that ulama denigrate and look down upon. Right? Because through media and so on, they've just made it that way. Except in the, in the minds of a few people. Alhamdulillah, in some countries that's changing hugely and the ulama are becoming much more respectful. Right? And more, more respected. Then you've got certain countries in the world, Muslim countries I'm talking about, they send some of their best students. When I say their best students, not just best students, but also their most wealthiest students to our top universities here, like Imperial College and uh, UCL and Oxford and Cambridge and, and so on. These students come. They're from, the, they're from you can say, the, the wealthy elite of their countries because, I mean, who's going to pay 20,000, 30,000 uh, pounds a year for fees, right? UK people find 9,000 a lot. I mean, 20,000 from another country along with every other cost. So it's only the very elite that come. These people, they come from a mindset of certain countries are like this. Not all countries are like this. Some countries are like that. Uh, they, they, they have a mindset that people who are religious are lowly. They're like the low class. Because generally among the, the wealthy elite in that country, the religion is not a big deal. Because money and position gives you a false sense of security. Religion also provides you security in the hereafter and this world and makes you deal with your emotions. But they don't know that because they can buy what they want and they can get what they want. They feel like religion is not for them. I've got my money. I've got my contacts. Right? I know somebody in the government or I know somebody in the local police station or whatever. So that's why a lot of corruption happens because of that. Some of these students, they come to the UK, maybe to America and other places. And now they're sitting next to Muslims who are from families born in the UK, who are religious, girls in hijab, niqab even, men who are praying salah, there's a musalla there in the university, and they're going for prayer, there's a Jumu'ah prayer, they're doing religious activities. These students, they're like, wow, you guys are our kind of uh, ultimate purpose in life, like we wish you could be like you, but what's wrong with you guys? And subhanAllah, many of them actually discover their religion in a Western country, which is really weird. I'm not saying that everybody needs to move to a Western country because of that. There's the pros and cons in every country, in every place, and so on. But that's something to understand. The same kind of thing you can see here as well, that they're saying that How can he have uh, sovereignty over us when we are more rightful and befitting of this sovereignty and he has not even been given a lot of wealth? Allahu Akbar. So Allah says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَاهُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَزَادَهُ بَسْطَطًا فِي الْعِلْمِ وَالْجِسْمِ Allah has chosen him, the Prophet Allah has chosen him over you and Allah has increased him both physically, right? So mashallah, you know, he was mashallah well, well to do in terms, of, uh, in terms of his body and physique and also in knowledge. وَاللَّهُ يُؤْتِي مُلْكَهُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ This is a huge amount of consolation for those who are downtrodden. Allah gives His sovereignty to whoever He wishes. Wallahu wasi'un alim. And Allah is the expansive and most knowing. He knows exactly where to play it. And that's why throughout history, you've seen huge traditions, dynasties, people who were on an ascent. They were untouchable at that time. They were superior. They were the superpowers. If you look at Khosrow's Madain, Tessifan, Right, of the Persian lands, that city was remarkable. Right? There was no way you could, you know, they, they defeated the Romans. Today there's no, there, 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 there's, there, there's not even a sign of them. Right? 
the, the few that are left, they're sitting in India, right? They're sitting in India, the fire worshippers, the Zoroastrians, the Magians. So if you look at history, you will see that whatever is ascendant right now doesn't have to be tomorrow. As long as you do the right thing, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you the true sovereignty, which is what really matters. And that's why this story is فَلَمَّا فَصَلَ طَالُوتُ بِالْجُنُودِ Then the whole discussion of Dawood alayhi salam, young man at that time, who kills Goliath, the huge giant, right? And finally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just like in the first juz, right? It's a perfect place to end this actually. The last verse here that was chosen to end this juz in, not by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala necessarily directly, although it is a choice of Allah because whoever made these 30 Jews did it from tawfiq, uh, with tawfiq from Allah. Allah says, Tilka ayatullahi natluha alayka bilhaq wa innaka lamin al mursaleen. That these are the signs of Allah that we relate to you, that we recite to you, right, with the truth. Right? A lot of these things, like this story, was not known by the, by the Jewish community at that time or the majority of it. You are truly the sent messenger. You are truly the apostle of God. Right? You are truly sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, to reinforce the message of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So now just to quickly wrap up a few additional points um, from the beginning to the end, just so that uh, this um, kind of whirlwind roller coaster ride, um, we remember some of the main points. Number one, from the Ayatul Bir, the discussion was that the most important thing is that you purify your heart and you straighten your approach to things as opposed to just being focused on the symbols and the outward ritual. But this is not to say, because you know, we've got a bit of an extreme. You've got some who say, focus on the symbols and they forget the substance. You get those who claim that they're doing the substance but they don't do the symbol. They won't pray. But they think that the objective of prayer is to be nice with others and be empathic and loving. So I'm doing that but I'm not doing this. The, the, the truth is that all of it is important. That being empathic, loving, kind, uh, generous is one important uh, feature of Islam, one paradigm of Islam and prayer for Allah in a particular way with the ritual, the outer form, is also important. That's why there's a huge amount of laws related to that. They're both important. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala underscores both things here. Number two, um, in a lot of those verses, starting, uh, in fact, this juz is the one that inco- uh, it, it, it includes ayatul bir, but it also includes another great ayah, which is ayatul sabr. Right, and that's an ayah that you should read carefully and always keep in mind, especially when you're going through difficulty and you will find huge comfort and solace and consolation in that. And that is from verse 153 to 157. Ya ayyuhaladina amanu salah. O people who believe, seek assistance through patience and through prayer. So patience is our emotional state of how we put mind over matter and we understand it's from Allah, we're doing it for Allah. And physically, you're doing the outer form of prayer as well. All for the sake of Allah. And Allah says, because Allah is with the patient ones. And then Allah says, do not consider those who have been killed in the path of Allah that they're dead. They're very living, but you don't perceive that. We will certainly test you. This is that famous verse of test. We'll certainly test you with a bit of khawf and ju, 
and naqsim min al-amwali wal anfusi wa thamarat a bit of Defici- uh, bit, bit of a loss of children or of crops or of wealth and hunger and so on but give glad tidings to the people who are patient right when any kind of affliction reaches them they say we are we belong to Allah we're going to return to him we've lost this right now right but we're also going to be lost to Allah one day and these are the people upon whom is the blessing of their Lord and the mercy and these are the people who are guided they know what to do in this state then after that we had the whole discussion about the obligation of fasting and the related rulings and so on. So that's something very important to go through, right? Number, number four, the next one is about hajj and so on. Uh, but as I mentioned, in this surah, it's uh, the, a lot of the physical aspects of the surah, whereas in Surah Al-Hajj it discusses a lot of the emotional aspects there. And number, uh, the next one is a huge discussion about family life. Family life is made up of husband and wife. Marriage, divorce, custody, children, nursing, all of that is discussed there. But Allah links all of that up to taqwa. Lots of discussion. If you look at those verses, when you read them closely, you'll see that there's lots of discussion about being cognizant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having taqwa and righteousness to make that work properly. Because if you don't, it's not going to work properly. It's going to be very selfish. Then finally, the discussion is about jalut, right, goliath. Huge discussion of sabr there following your leader and doing the right thing and keeping your hope in Allah. And that also teaches us steadfastness, sticking to your principles. That gives us all of that discussion and how small groups will even overcome big ones because the assistance of Allah is the most important thing for anybody. And the last point I want to make here, verse 251, which we're going to be discussing tomorrow. So I leave that right now. But may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept. May Allah accept. May Allah guide us. And may Allah open up the Quran for us and make it a solace and comfort for our hearts. Wa akhiru da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.